Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, October 20th, 2016. Tonight, Charles Marshall joins me to talk about the elements of actually winning a case, the life cycle of a case in court. He has won cases, I have won cases, Patrick Junton in Fort Lauderdale has won cases, and dozens of other competent lawyers have won cases in foreclosure by planning, preparing, and creating a strategy that gives them the best shot. Even in the hostile environment of a judge who thinks that our clients are deadbeats. Living Lies is coming out with a short mini-seminar on objections, trial objections, which most lawyers don't like to make because they are afraid of getting the judge irritated. I tell those lawyers that if they want to do this work, they must be prepared to get a pie in the face because they are the warriors who are fighting the battle that their clients can't fight. I don't need to tell Charles Marshall that because that is, that's the way he practices anyway, and he understands why he's in a courtroom. So tonight, Charles and I will discuss strategic planning for a lawsuit campaign encompassing uh, pre-foreclosure uh, negotiation, settlement demands, filing of a lawsuit in non-judicial states, defending a lawsuit in judicial states, demurs, motions to dismiss, discovery, summary judgment, pre-trial preparation and motions, and something I added to the list, Charles, pre-trial orders, and I'll get to that myself. Uh, the trial itself, appeals, post-appeal judgment options, post-sale lawsuits for wrongful foreclosure. We won't get to everything, but we will get you thinking. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you, all of you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and if someone doesn't pick up, then leave a message and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, and we've worked on this for, uh, we're in our 10th year now, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. I keep inviting Charles back to the show, 
and I am encouraging him to host the show or even start his own. This is a guy who thinks, a guy who plans, and a guy who cares about the result, not just whether he can justify the fee he charged. And by the way, another nudge to him on the article he's promised me for the blog. Charles is an attorney with offices in San Diego County and operates throughout California. He practices in all four federal California districts and has been the lead attorney in appeals pending before the Ninth Circuit and the six California state appellate courts. He can be reached at 619-807-2628. I hope I got that number right this time. Yeah. And um, uh, we'll... Well, email is also a good way to reach me, and that would be cmarshall at marshallestatelaw.com. So, again, that's cmarshall, marshall with two L's, at marshallestatelaw.com. And the first letter is C, as in Charles. Right, exactly. All right. Well, Charles, welcome back. Yeah, it's great to be back on your show again, Neil. Um, let's get into uh, the life cycle of the court experience, which, of course, starts before um, anybody files anything in court. And uh, hopefully it's always, we always hope as lawyers that people will come to us uh, uh, at least somewhat before the day before the sale of the property because there's not a whole lot we can do uh, uh, if things are imminent, but there are things that we can do afterwards. The, the ideal uh, time to go to a lawyer is before you make any decisions about a matter that, that involves something legal. So what do I mean by that? I mean that if you're first getting notices or changes or whatever in the mail, from somebody who's purporting to be a servicer and you're either uh, not paying or you are paying, but they're changing the amounts and all that, that's the time to go see a lawyer just for the consultation. Most people, when they get into these things, they just put them off uh, they procrastinate, they're embarrassed, they don't want to admit to themselves that they're in a, a position or a potential position, and a lot of the bad experiences that you hear about in court are caused by clients who, uh, uh, homeowners, who didn't go soon enough. Um, so, Charles, talk a little bit about pre-foreclosure negotiation and settlement demands and so forth. 
Uh, sure, Neil. And I'm, I'm absolutely uh, on the same page with you when it comes to going to an attorney or if you're doing this on your own and you plan to file a lawsuit either pro per in state court or pro se in federal, or for that matter, if you're defending a lawsuit in a place like Florida, even then, uh, if you're in the Florida or Massachusetts situation where you're in a judicial foreclosure state, absolutely not a good idea to wait till, till you get the filed lawsuit uh, because you are dealing with institutional players no matter which side of the bar you're on, whether you're acting as a plaintiff or whether you're acting as a defendant. In the vast majority of cases, you will have the heads up months in advance about your situation. You are going to be getting uh, credit harassment letters or debt notification letters, again, whether you're in a judicial or a non-judicial foreclosure state. So you will know in advance, and the best way to manage this is the way that you might manage a medical problem that you have. You don't want to wait until uh, you have something that metastasizes into cancer or, or leads to a stroke or heart attack. You want to get your situation analyzed and assessed well before that, to, to continue with that analogy. And so it's absolutely critical that you get yourself in front of somebody who's a specialist and who can diagnose and analyze your documents and give you an assessment based on that so you'll you'll be able to stay on the offense you know again whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant you need to know what your options are and it's much better to be able to to be proactive than to have to be reactive one of my favorite sayings regarding this uh, particular situation is as in life so in law just as you have a million decisions every day to make about your life and you have critical decisions and critical junctures where the decisions you make matter, absolutely true in this legal arena as well. And so if you can get a jump on your case and not have to be defensive, that's the best way to go into these lawsuits. So what... What are some of the things I know what you know uh what I tell people uh is there are three things that I like to send out um, uh even if litigation has already started one is a qualified written request uh, uh which is under uh, the real estate settlement and procedures act. Uh, second is a debt validation letter, which is under the FDCPA. And the third is, um, and this may not apply in all cases, but very often the answers you get back will raise more issues than they will uh, actually answer. And that's an opportunity to write a letter to the Consumer Affairs uh, uh, division of the attorney general of your state. Now, it's true that the attorney general will rarely, if ever, actually step in and do something. But one thing they do is they forward your complaint letter, which 
uh, hopefully will detail what's wrong with this picture and require an answer from the bank servicer, trustee, what have you. Um, and and I wouldn't discount the possibility of filing a complaint with the Consumer Financial Protection Board, um, uh, even though they had that decision recently about their structure. Um, uh, it didn't knock them out of the box at all, uh, and they will be prosecuting plenty of things. Um, what else do you think people ought to be doing or lawyers should be advising their clients to do when they know something's coming up? And by the way, another way of knowing that something is imminent is when you start getting advertisements from lawyers and other people telling you that they're going to help you out of the foreclosure mess or uh, get a modification or short sale or whatever. Uh, it means that they've been watching what's been filed and, uh, and your name came up, and so you can expect something in the very near future to start. So, Charles, what would you say uh, a lawyer should be uh, advising their clients about what to do in the pre-foreclosure stage? Well, particularly in California, where it's anticipated that you're going to be on the plaintiff's side, I do start most of my legal actions with the QWR that you were referring to and then follow with a debt validation letter. Now, typically, the responses to these, they're not going to be substantive responses, and it's going to be unusual if it will lead to an early settlement. However, it gives you great documentation to put into your pleadings, so it's useful in almost all cases. And in fact, uh, consistent with something you said, Neil, even after litigation is already underway, a QWR debt validation letter can sometimes be helpful. The one aspect uh, that you mentioned as the last element, the uh, CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now that what I have found in California, and I suspect this is simply their policy nationwide, is that they they have a standing policy of rarely getting involved in ongoing litigation. Now, they will sometimes weigh in on a specific appeal. Once a, once a lawsuit, let's say, has gone to dismissal and it wasn't settled, then, like Ivanova, they will sometimes weigh in on the appeal. But if you just began litigation or you're, you're, you're in the middle of a lawsuit, with, let's say, a summary judgment motion pending, if you go to the CFPB at that point, they're almost always going to tell you, well, you have an attorney. We won't get in the middle of this. So it's best to put these letters to them even right before you file, but before you file in California. And I've, I've also seen that that's where it's the most effective. I would agree with everything you just said. Um, and I think that uh, um, these letters uh, can be drafted, of course, by anybody, but this is where a lawyer who really knows what they're doing can be of assistance. They can 
ghostwrite it for you or they can give you at least some verbiage that will be helpful. A lot of people send what they call a qualified written request in which most of, of, of what is written in there is ranting and raving about how bad the banks are and the government and, and you know, uh, sometimes it even gets into uh, particular political figures uh, on the stage. Um, that's not a qualified written request. Qualified written request is demanding information related specifically to your loan, not things in general, and raising issues in the letter that cause you to be asking those questions. Then you, and, and that is not a long letter. I mean, it might be one page, two page, maybe even three pages at most. But these uh, giant piles of paper that people are sending as qualified written requests are pretty much, uh, if not ignored, they get a, you know, a one-liner back saying, um, uh, sometimes it'll say, I don't think you've asked us anything that we can't answer, or it, it may say, uh, you know, we don't know what you're asking for, but here's a copy of your note and mortgage and some other things, which, by the way, can be helpful because it's not uncommon at all where they send you a copy of the note and there's no endorsement on it, or they send you a copy of an assignment and it's defective in a number of ways, or so avoid and because there's a different department that handles that than the litigation uh, department. You can use the institutional nature of these beasts that are chasing down homeowners against themselves. So, um, uh, I, again, I, the point of what I'm saying here is uh, go to a lawyer, and if they don't know what to, you know, how to advise you or how to draft something for you, they can come back to, uh, to Living Lives or Charles or a number of other people who will help them through it. And um, uh, that's when you're, you, you need to start focusing as soon as you know that you're going to end up in a confrontation of some sort. So, all right, so in non-judicial states, the homeowner has to sue to stop the foreclosure, whereas in judicial states, the homeowner has to file an answer, uh, but it is the so-called lender or holder or possessor of the note uh, that files the, the lawsuit to start the foreclosure. In a non-judicial state, the start of a foreclosure can be seen when they file a substitution of trustee, which will shortly thereafter be followed by a notice of default and notice of sale. Um, 
the substitution of trustee, I think, is is something that uh, well, something that Charles and I have discussed about on the show. Uh, that it doesn't get enough attention from lawyers who are filing lawsuits to stop the non-judicial sale. Charles, what are... Uh, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't, Neil. That's often where the chain of title break occurs. And right. And even where the chain of title break goes back to the securitization itself, that's often one of the best places to attack uh, deficiencies in the assignments. So what are the issues, as you would frame them, uh, if you're advising lawyers in non-judicial states um, about what to put in a lawsuit and when to file it uh, uh, to stop the trustee from proceeding to sell the property? Well, there's no question that in California, and I think this is going to end up, uh, I think it's already the prevailing view in all non-judicial foreclosure states that after Ivanova, it shortly will be if it's not already. And that is you, you, you will want as the borrower to wait for a notice of default. Now, again, you don't wait to start your campaign until you get the notice of default. Ideally, you'll start before then. But you don't want to actually file a lawsuit until you have a notice of default, particularly in California, because such a filing will be considered essentially a test case, a preemptive lawsuit, the Ivanova court called. So it's critical that you wait till the notice of default, but it's also effective if, if you know if you can file sooner than rather than later into that notice of default. On the other hand, even if you file up until the time of sale, literally within two to three days, those lawsuits can often get a great amount of attention when they're fronted with a demand letter. As long as there's a demand letter that's faxed to the servicer and the auction sales trustee, you know, even one to two days before the sale can be effective, you have to do things like confirm that the fax was received, but when the... Uh, the servicer and sales trustee don't have enough time to really review what they consider the merits of a lawsuit. They'll often postpone. And once they postpone, they're more likely to postpone again. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier, Neil, that I think is really important to emphasize is that tone is critical in the approach to these lawsuits. And, and what I mean by that is this. When you approach the other side, and I, I don't think it's unreasonable to, to say that institutionally and as a group, these servicers and sales trustees behave despicably. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And no, the outrageousness and ruthlessness of the other side knows no bounds. And I'm sorry, go ahead, Neil. No, I said I would agree with that. I think that's a fair statement. And yet, despite that, what we have to do uh, on our side is one metaphor would be hold our powder. And that means you, you don't want to blow up the other side, whether it's in a QWR or any other document, whether it's in the pleadings themselves. You want 
all of your documents and even your verbal communications by phone, you want those representations of your position to be legal, to be concise, to be straightforward, and to, to have at a minimum uh, editorializing about the, uh, the moral deficiencies, of which there are many, unfortunately. But, you know, you don't want to, to focus on or even bring attention to the moral deficiencies of the players on the other side. It's not going to help your case legally, practically, programmatically. What will help your case is being clear and clean in your pleadings, staying on the facts and the law, and avoiding as much as possible editorializing. The more professional you can make your presentation, and in all respects, if possible, the more likely you are to uh, to get a good result at the end of the day. Now, what what one quick caveat to that is I am not saying at all that this is supposed to be a gentleman's jest or something like that. I'm not saying at all that people should 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 be uh you know have a sort of uh um deferential uh approach to any of this. You you absolutely have to have strong intention and you have to have strong will to bring and maintain these lawsuits and get good settlements. Um, but, you know, for lack of a better word, you want to avoid behavior that if you were looking at it in somebody else, somebody might look at it and say, well, that's, that's just talking or writing like a jerk. You don't want to be a jerk. However justified, it's not going to advance your case. You need to be as professional as possible. I, 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 uh, what, what I've told, uh, lawyers, and their clients is that passion is a good thing. Um, Absolutely. But you don't want to get as emotionally involved with the case as your client is. And you don't and the reason for that is you don't want your judgment clouded the way their judgment was clouded and waiting to go to a lawyer and a variety of other circumstances uh where they may have inadvertently created conduct or statements or uh uh correspondence that admits that the substitute trustee is the right trustee that admits that the service, the party claiming to be the servicer is the servicer, that admits the existence of a trust and that the trustee has powers and admits that the trust has uh, has purchased the loan. Uh, at this point, we're about 99.99% sure that there is no trust that's ever purchased a loan, uh, not in the last 15 years, maybe in the late 90s. Um, uh, where we're talking about residential mortgage loans, that's not that statement is not necessarily true as the securitization of other types of debt. So, um, it, it what Charles is is saying is so important because when you get in front of a judge, and this is to the lawyers who are on now, when you get in front of a judge. You need to be passionate, 
you need to be confrontative. You know, I had a judge say to me once, you know, don't argue with me. And my response to him, he was half my age, was I thought that's why they called it oral argument. And <laughs> it ch it changed his attitude. He laughed a little bit, and I actually won. But the, the point is that uh, uh, there's, you know, the Goldilocks approach. You don't want to be too deferential, and you don't want to be too aggressive in the courtroom because the judge won't respect either one. So you've got to pick and focus and narrow the issues to the things that you think you can get traction on. And you're only going to know that is if you go down to the courthouse and watch judges and how they're ruling and what's gets, what gets traction and what doesn't. It's different. It's different even sometimes with the same judge, but certainly with two different judges, and even more so as you get to two different counties or two different states. Um, things are different. And, you know, the judges talk amongst themselves, and um, uh, they, you know, they do research that they share with each other, and they come to some conclusions, and that's how they walk in the courtroom. That's not necessarily the way it's supposed to be, but it's the way it is. So, okay, so I think we covered that. So the next step in the non-judicial state, Charles, is what happens when you file the lawsuit? They're not going to answer saying, you're right, we don't know who the creditor is, we have no business being involved with this loan. What they're going to say is, you have no business being in court. And that is called a demurra in uh, California. Uh, it's called a motion to dismiss in other states. Why don't you talk a little bit about that uh, and and the strategies in dealing with that? Uh, sure, Neil. And uh, one of the most important elements is how how are you framing your pleadings? And you mentioned a minute ago, I think, a really critical element in how these pleadings need to be framed in these types of cases. And you, you have to make sure that you are not conceding important points about the provenance of a loan and about the legal relationship you have. And you don't want to use words like borrower. I use that word colloquially and conveniently. But as a legal matter, you don't want to concede anything, including that, there's, that there was a debt out there. And it's, it's as important what you include as what you don't include in these pleadings. And sometimes you even have to, that's in the pleadings that you are not admitting such and such. I mean, your admissions are going to be either direct or indirect, but sometimes, especially in these types of cases, you want to call attention specifically to what you're not admitting. And that makes it more likely that your, your pleadings are going to survive because a lot of motions to dismiss will be based on a narrow ruling of the law. And when you've made certain admissions, particularly like something to the effect, if you admit the default in California, I mean, that's fatal to your case. And I still see too many pleadings 
drawn by other attorneys in this field where they don't they don't necessarily say they're admitting the default per se, but they refer to uh, back payments, arrearages. They refer to the borrower being behind. They refer to the borrower as somebody who's a borrower behind in payments. And that immediately sets up legal admissions that the other side will take advantage of. So once you have your sure pleadings... Right. And they, so you have they, to have your pleadings right. That's one of the critical elements. Yeah, I think I think the point you just made about the default, if you admit even tacitly that the property owner is in default, then by extension, you are admitting that the party seeking to collect is the right party. By extension, you're admitting that there is a loan contract. By extension, you are admitting that they have a right to enforce it. And by extension, you're admitting that absent payment or some other uh, uh, important uh, uh, element, uh, payment being numbers one through five, absent payment, they're entitled to foreclose. You're even admitting at that point that they were the right parties to substitute the trustee. And I've seen, like what Charles just said, I've seen too many pleadings that amount to, okay, they're in default, but here's why you should do something for them and give them some relief. Well, that's not the business of the courts to, to bring relief to somebody who defaulted on a, on a valid legal contract. Their job is to call balls and strikes, and if you've admitted that the claim is correct, you're going to lose. So Right. I mean, these judges are looking for an easy out. So one of the things you're, you're, you're trying to do on your side when you're on the plaintiff's side, either as the client or the attorney, you absolutely want to make your pleading strong from the beginning because that's going to give you the best positioning to survive the demure motion to dismiss. And once you do that, what you need to anticipate is these institutional defendants, and I'm seeing this all the time now, now post Ivanova, with a lot of my cases going past demure and motions to dismiss, I'm getting discovery almost inevitably. I mean, it's just like clockwork. And the timing of discovery is another kind of critical call. I mean, there's there are a number of particularly clients who who really want to see discovery done shortly after filing the lawsuit. That can sometimes be helpful, but generally what I found is the best time discovery is after the uh, motion to dismiss and demure is decided on because the causes of action that move forward will then serve as the basis for uh, the discovery that you yourself on the plaintiff's side will promulgate. And you can be sure that they will serve as the basis for the discovery that the defense 
is going to be putting on you as the plaintiff. And discovery, like every other aspect uh, uh, of the lawsuit process, you, you have to keep your cool as the litigator. You have to stay as much as you possibly can professional and on point and coordinate with your attorney to make sure that they get the documents and information they, they need. I mean, discovery is absolutely used in these cases by the institutional servicers and sometimes sales trustees in California and sometimes the nominal trust holder. And, of course, when I say nominal, you can certainly put air quotes around that. I mean right. fraudulent in the vast majority of cases. Uh, but, yeah, you will have New York Bank Mellon or U.S. Bank or Deutsche Bank promulgating discovery in a lot of these cases once the demurs go forward. And their, dis their discovery is harassing. They ask a ridiculous number of questions. They promulgate every type of discovery. They have special interrogatories. They have general interrogatories. They have requests for admissions. They have ridiculous, voluminous requests for production of documents, expecting you to bring, you know, a carload of documents to one of their legal offices or somewhere else so that they can make copies. I mean, this sort of thing can be really intrusive. Fortunately, most cases, what I've just described, is kind of the far end of what to expect. But still, it's something that needs to be dealt with. And it's like every other aspect uh, to the lawsuit process. Or, or to use my phrase again, as in life, so in law, you just have to coordinate with your attorney, uh, make sure you do things timely. And once you get past that barrier, uh, you know, the next thing that these institutional players and attorneys will do is often bring a mo motion for summary judgment. But again, this is many months into the lawsuit. So as you survive each stage, your settlement value builds. You're often able to settle out on very favorable terms during this time. And then as it gets closer to trial, settlement value goes up even more because I've also, as I've also said before on this radio program, Settlement value is largely a function of what the fact finder will do at trial. And that's why in the vast majority of these cases, I ask for a jury trial. Because a jury is always going to be somewhat of an unknown quantity, especially for the other side, since they know a lot of you know, people on the street, so to speak, rightfully are skeptical of it best, and in many cases, derisive about uh, the institutional uh, lenders and servicers. So you, you put all this together, it's a lot of moving parts, it's a lot of elements. That's why it's critical you have expertise in how this is being handled. And it's, it's also why it's critical to stay on top of your own case because there's a lot of things that can happen and you want to make sure that something, uh, you know, doesn't happen that just catches you by surprise. If you're if you're on top of your case and uh, following up with your attorney, then it makes these surprises much less likely to happen. You know, in uh, in discovery, I'm always at war with myself because I've noticed that 
if I press discovery too early, they start coming up with new documents, which I know are fabricated, and possibly the judge knows it too, but as long as they're facially valid, it gives the judge an excuse to rule for them. For example, if they don't have a, uh, a servicing agreement, then suddenly late in the game, like shortly before trial, they will come up with a power of attorney from the trust that doesn't own anything that says that the they have the the whoever is being given the power of attorney has the right to uh negotiate or sign or some of them are very limited and uh i've i've had a few cases where we've been successful just by looking at the power of attorney which didn't give all the uh, required powers uh, uh, to do anything. And they use that power of attorney in lieu of a servicing agreement, which makes no sense. But it's gonna, that's going to get right past the judge unless you bring it up. So discovery, for me, is a case-by-case -case, uh, decision-making affair. I may skip discovery because I don't want to give them notice of what's wrong and fatally wrong with what they're relying on for documents because I know that, except in rare cases, there's nobody reviewing these documents on the servicer or trustee or lender side, whatever you want to call it, um, the way I am. And the way Charles does. I mean, we look at every corner to see, you know, if there's a marking there, what might that mean? And does it help provide a potential date on which the document was done, notwithstanding the assertions that were fraudulently presented in court? So um, uh, I, if you're going to do discovery, uh, be aware you're going to get blanket objections, and you've got to be ready to fight it out with motions to compel. you have any comments exactly. on that, Charles? Exactly, Neil. That's That's uh, been my experience as well, particularly when it comes to the Homeowner Bill, Bill of Rights in California. There are certain letters and representations that have to be sent out prior to recording a notice of default. And even now with all the institutional reforms that have happened in California over the last couple of years, a lot of these servicers don't get the letters out. I find it's typically better to call attention to this after demure and motion to dismiss, because sometimes I can, I can get a case to go forward largely on that basis, or sometimes even on that basis alone. And that's a huge deal. If I do discovery on that issue early, I, I am much more likely to get a fabricated letter. I might even get a letter that's genuine or valid that never would have been unearthed otherwise. So, well, we're going to have to end, Charles. By the way, we're it only can hurt a case, but it's just to finish your point. Um, yeah, all phases of a lawsuit, you have to think critically and you have to do things on a case by case basis. Right. We need to end it there. We'll do pretrial uh, prep. 
uh, pretrial orders, trial appeals, post-appeal judgments, and post-sale lawsuits. I'm Charles is on. Thank you for being with us, and thank you, Charles, for all of your skills and wisdom. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.